Thank you, Jim. We'll be uh, spending a lot of time this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 8. Last week we began to look at our desperate need for revival. And I, I stated then that what I consider to be one of the one of the basic rules of revival, that revival comes when God's people seek Him in humbled repentance. No matter how much we may beg and plead with God to come, He won't come until we're broken over our sins. I believe that is the first thing that God looks for in revival. But I believe there's some other things too that go along with it. And, and I'm not saying that if you do these certain things that you can... You are making God bring revival. I'm not saying that you can guarantee a revival if you just fill out these few things. But I do believe these things not only are consistent with revival, but they're things that God looks for in revival and that the work of revival actually produces within us. In other words, we put ourselves in the right place for God to move among us when we're doing these things. And one of those we looked at last week was humbled repentance. This morning, I want to bring you to a second. We're going to skip the verses at the beginning, Carrie. Um, and I'm just going to go straight to the second rule of revival is... is from what I have seen in Scripture, and we'll see this morning, revival comes when God's people seek Him in biblical reverence. So just as revival comes when we seek Him in humbled repentance, it also comes when we seek Him in biblical reverence. God will not spend send His Spirit down on those who are not repentant of their sins. He will also not send His Spirit down on those who disregard His Word. If we want revival, if we're truly desperate for God to move among us, to renew His church, and to reinvigorate our lives, we must prioritize His Word. We must read it yearn for it, wrestle in it, love it. Not because the words themselves are worth loving, nearly so much as the one who has spoken them is worth loving. And since they're his words, we ought to love them too. You might wonder, what, is revi what, what do the Bible, what does the Bible have to do with revival? What, what connection is there? I mean, most of the time when we think of revival, we get these images in our heads of God's Spirit moving among His people, of, of great worship and repentance. We, we see people flooding the aisles and crying over their sins and begging God to forgive them. We see people turning toward Him. We see families being restored. We see, we see fathers and mothers dedicating their, their lives to, to helping raise their kids to love God. We see people turning away from lives of drugs and alcohol and, 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 and trusting God to take care of those things. We see these images in our heads and no wonder we want revival because those things are commensurate with the Spirit of God moving. You, God doesn't move and us stay the same. That don't happen. When God moves, we change. But what does the Bible have to do with this? I mean, the Bible, let's see. Even the most recent book written was the book of Revelation. 
written before 100 AD. And that's the most recent. That's 1900 years ago, folks. That's the most recent. Some of these books, we don't even know how old they are. We have no clue how old Job is. We don't know when he lived. We don't know when the book was written. Some of these books probably started as stories passed down from generation to generation and then were finally written down. Genesis most likely was oral tradition long before it was written on parchment or papyrus leaves. This is an old dusty book. What does it have to do with the fresh anointing of God's spirit? Well, it turns out a lot. You see, one of the things that it has to do with is that God is the one who authors scripture. Now, God's the one whose spirit is moving to bring revival. And it's the same God who, who spoke these words. Peter writes in his second letter. He talks about having heard the voice of the Father directly. He talks about audibly hearing God's voice. If you remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is, is radiating the glory of God and Moses and Elijah are beside him. And Peter thinks, oh man, this is a perfect opportunity. Let's build a monument here to celebrate this fact. And, it, and, and then he hears God's voice saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And when Peter lifts up his eyes, the only one he sees is Jesus. He hears the audible voice of the Father. But then he says, 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. How more fully confirmed do you get than God talking to you out loud where everybody else around hears it too. How more fully confirmed do you get than that? Well, he explains it. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, we get all mixed up on what that prophecy means. We get all kinds of interpretations on how to take that prophecy, but the prophecy itself doesn't come from man. Because look at this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have a Bible that is written by men but authored by God. And that same author of Scripture, that same one who moves these men to write the words in such a way that they're not just dictating, they're not in a trance, they're not only writing down what God says, like a secretary is transcribing a letter for her boss. They're not just doing that. No, no. Their personality, their own way of saying things gets put in there. You can hear the heart of David in the Psalms. You can feel the, the passion of Peter as he writes his epistles. You can see the, how John's eyes have been illuminated as you read his works, his gospel, his epistles, Revelation. You can almost hear him in Revelation trying to figure out how to describe this. And this is the best I can do. Their personalities come through, but yet it is God who is leading them. God, God who is authoring this book. And as the 
late night infomercial guys say, but wait, there's more. Not only did God offer scripture, God reveals himself and his will through the scriptures. The Bible isn't just a random assortment of things that God said. It has a distinctive purpose. It reveals God and what he wants. Look at Paul's instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting verse 14, but as for you, see all those other folks are chasing after all kinds of terrible things. Man, they are mixed up, Timothy. They're pursuing all kinds of things that, that, that will sound good to their ears. They're pursuing all kinds of doctrines. They're, they're, they're tossed to and fro. They don't know what, they're, what they should believe. But you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Read Bible. Read scripture. That's what he's talking about. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what had Timothy learned and firmly believed? What had he been acquainted with since childhood? The scriptures. What did they teach? They taught him about Jesus. They taught him about his need for a savior. They taught him about the sufficiency of Christ to save from sin. They taught him wisdom for living. And how had he been taught that? How did Timothy know? I mean, he didn't meet Paul until he was an adult. Young adult, but still an adult. Apparently, I need you to sit right, please. Thank you, buddy. How did he know? Mama. Grandmama. They taught him. And then comes verse 16. All Scripture. Get this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed. Every single word of it, even the begats, even the stuff we skip through, the names we can't pronounce, that's inspired by God. How much more how much more passages like this that are full of doctrine and teaching and instruction and reproof and correction? How much more does the Word of God speak to us in situations like this? It's all breathed out by God, every single bit of it, all of it. And it's useful too for all kinds of things. God didn't waste his time writing this book, authoring this book. Brantley, I need you to stop now. Buddy, you're distracting everybody. Please stop. He didn't waste his time. God did not, he didn't just have nothing better to do. Thank y'all, by the way, for being patient with us. We're learning. It would have been one thing. Every other culture in the world of that day, every other one, didn't quite know what their gods wanted of them. No wonder they were fake gods. They couldn't tell. But, Let's step into their minds for a moment. Think, think about cultures like the ancient Babylonians that had tons of gods. The Greeks and the Romans with their pantheons. One God wants this, one God wants that, one God likes this over here. How do you keep up with it all? And then what if you don't know? What if the gods demand something of you and you don't even know it? It was scary. There's a prayer. 
In this prayer, he's praying, this person is praying to a God whom I do not know, to a goddess whom I do not know. He doesn't even know whether it's a god or a goddess, not to mention what he did wrong. Not to mention any of the other things. He doesn't know. He has no clue. And so he's just trying to pray as much as he can to cover as many bases as he can. And that's how he had to pray. Well, we have a God who tells us what he wants who gives us his words to live by and not only just tells us what he wants, but uses those same words to change us. See, God changes us through his word. Just as God speaks into existence everything that is, when God speaks into us, it radically transforms who we are. We, we read this earlier in Psalm 19. Look back at verse 7. And look at the ways God changes us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It revives our souls. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It makes us wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. It rejoices our hearts. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It doesn't just work on us. It works on our world. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You're not going to scrub it off. You're not going to get rid of it. You're not going to outlive it. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You're not going to find a better way. It's desirable. It's more to be desired than, than gold. Sweeter than honey. It, it pleases our senses. It warns us of error. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. It rewards us. And our obedience and keeping them there is great reward. God speaks, you cannot be helped but made new by his word, if you'll let it. And that's how a revival happens. It's God changing us. You see, see, revival isn't God approving us. It isn't God affirming who we are. It isn't God saying, I love you because you're you. Revival is God saying, I love you, and because I love you, I'm not going to leave you the same. I'm going to make you who you need to be. I'm going to transform you so you think the right kinds of thoughts. So you speak the right kinds of words. So you know how to handle yourself. So you look like my son. It cracks me up. Sometimes my kids do something and it looks just like me. And sometimes, no, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes they do something and it's just like mama. James is a great saxophone player already. He's, he's already got a talent for it. It's like, yeah, you definitely got that from mama. That did not come from me because I'm, I'm not that musical, but she is. When you see that, when you see your child growing up and there's a little bit of you in them, makes you smile. And sometimes you see it and, and you just want to hug them with your hands on their neck. Unfortunately, they get that stuff too, don't they? See, when God, when you spend time with God in his word, and you actually do what it says, he makes you more like him. And that's what the revival really is. See, the revival isn't just God coming down to be with you. The revival is God coming down to make you be like him. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God brought us back to life. Paul tells the Philippian believers, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's doing the work in you, not just to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, not just to do some things for his kingdom, but to transform you so that you want to. All right, so the Bible has a lot to do with revival. Turns out it's one of God's principal ways of bringing revival. So that brings us to a question. How should we respond to the Bible? If this is the way that God wants to work in us to, to produce the, the, the movement of his spirit in us, to change us, to, to reinvigorate us, then, then what should we do in response? Remember our rule. Revival comes when God's people seek him in biblical reverence. So what does that look like? Well, let's do an actual case study. I said we'd be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, right? Now we're going to Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you've been holding your finger there the whole time, thank you so much for your patience. We are ready to get there. Nehemiah chapter 8 is a case study in an actual revival. So Nebuchadnezzar overtakes the city of Jerusalem, and he does it on a couple of occasions, but the first time is in 609 B.C. 609, he comes in and he takes a whole bunch of, of the youth and, and the most promising members of the elites in Jerusalem with him, including Daniel and his three friends go in this exile. And from then to the time that Babylon is captured in 539 BC, there's 70 years of exile. And in that 70 years, God had purged from the Jewish nation much of their idolatry. There is, there is no more appetite for false gods by the time Babylon is conquered by Persia. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty hefty punishment for his people. But man, was it effective. Some had been able to return shortly thereafter. And they'd been able to do some work on the temple. But without a wall protecting the city, there's, there's a lot of threats around. So enter Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer. With his approval and with funds from the treasury, he leads the residents in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. 52 days. Now, now to be fair, what they really did was they shored up several key areas. There were a couple places where the wall was in pretty good shape already and it just needed to be topped off. There were other areas where the wall was completely destroyed and it had to be rebuilt from scratch. But all in all, 52 days, they get this wall built. Now they've got protection from their enemies. And considering all the obstacles that they over, overcame with, with uh, local leaders in, around the area trying to fight against them and threats on his life, and it's really incredible that they were able to do it that quickly. But now with the wall rebuilt, now we can have real revitalization. Now we can have real revival because, because the wall was just the first step. What needed to happen now was the hearts of the people needed to be rebuilt. They needed to be renewed and revived. And so 
Here's the revival. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Do you see it? The very first thing we need to do to respond to God's word is we must hear it. You don't know what it says. You can't do it. Right? They came to hear God's word. I want you to notice something though. I want you to notice just how much effort they put in to hearing God's word. Verse 1 tells us that they gathered as one man into the square. But the last verse of chapter 7 tells us that they were in their towns, which means that they had to journey. Nobody lived in Jerusalem. Hardly anybody lived in the city at this point. They had to recruit people later on. I think it's in chapter 10 or chapter 11. They have to recruit people to live in the town. So they can't even live. They're not even living there. They're living all scattered around. And some of them have an hour journey. Some of them have a couple hours journey. Some of them, it might have been a much rougher journey than others. Up some mountains. Jerusalem is in the mountains. And certain ways to get into the city are a lot harder than others. So they made the effort to come to this one place to hear the word of God. And it wasn't just the physically able men. It was men and women, those who could understand so what do you do with the babies? I mean, was there just a whole section of, of moms just like rocking babies, trying to get them to be quiet while the word was being read? I don't know. Maybe there were some. Maybe some of the small kids had to stay back home and someone who couldn't make the journey but could watch after the little ones for a while had to stay back. But they had to make child care arrangements. Agricultural work had to stop. I mean, this is an agricultural society. Here in the seventh month, you know what time it is? It's harvest season. Maybe the crops weren't quite ready yet. That would have made it a little easier. Maybe they were. And they had to just forego a little bit of time of getting all the crops harvested. Look at verse 3, though. There's even more that goes into this. And he read from it, from the word, the book of the law, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand and all the, the ears, excuse me, of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Did you notice how long it was? From early in the morning until midday. Y'all thought I preached a long time. He read for hours. That took some preparation. That took preparation on Ezra's part. Maybe there was a group of them reading. Maybe they took turns. Somebody had to have some water for that poor guy if he was by himself. If it was just him reading, I mean, that would have... I know my voice, just from preaching for as short as I do, and y'all are laughing because I say short, right? But just in that amount of time, my voice, it, it's hard on my voice. I can't imagine going for hours. There was more plans. Where's he going to stand? And there's a whole bunch of people standing with him. Where are they going to stand so that everybody can see? Well, verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood up on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. There was enough planning that went into it that they said, let's build a platform so we can all see him and hear him better. Do you see what's going on here? They are making plans to hear the word of God. This isn't just accident. This isn't just they were walking by and some guy with a microphone and a speaker is street preaching. 
And they just happen upon it? No, this was planned. A great deal of effort went in to this day just to hear the word of God. And if we want God to move in our midst, we have to be willing to hear his word too. And it's not just from a preacher on Sunday morning. I love preaching. I love it. I absolutely do. But if I'm the only word of God you're hearing, if me preaching it is the only time you hear from God, that's, that's a problem. Much as I love you, much as I love preaching to you, you need to be in it for yourself too. All right? So we hear the word. It's not really a response so much as it is, is getting us to hear it so we can respond, right? So what do we do now? Well, now we must honor it. Not only do we hear it, but we have to put it in its rightful place. Giving God's word honor is not optional. It is a requirement for revival to happen. Verse 5, look how they honored. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Seems like a small thing, but that change in posture means a lot. It means they're ready to hear what God has to say. They're not distracted. Boy, is it easy to get distracted. They're not comfortable. They're not being lazy. They're ready to hear and respond. All right, you've heard it. You've put yourself in a place to hear it and, and, and to honor it. So what do you do now? Well, now, now we must hearken to it. We just read this a minute ago, but look at the end of verse three. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Something really interesting happens here. In the Hebrew text, sometimes the way it's stated is a little different than we would say in English. So one of the things that's different in this passage that I find interesting is it doesn't say we're attentive. Literally, the text reads the words of the people to the book of the law. They didn't even have to use words like we're attentive because their ears were literally to that book. Are your ears to God's law? Can you say that you so hearken to God's voice that when he speaks, your ears immediately go straight to him? I think of a dog. He hears a noise. His ears pop up. His eyes open. What is that? Do I need to bark at it? Is that my favorite people coming home? Are we that way with God? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Do your ears perk up when you hear God begin to speak? If we want revival, we have to hear him. But if we're not listening, we're not going to hear him. We must hearken to his word. Then one of my favorite aspects of this entire story comes. Uh, they didn't just gather to hear the word. Put all that just to hear the word and just to, just to honor it and just to say, yes, that's a great word. That is God's word. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And it focuses on the leaders here, but, but I think it has something to say to all of us. If we want revival, we must help others understand this Bible. You see, see, it's one thing to hear it and to say, well, I don't know what it means. I don't know, I don't know what I should do about it, but yeah, okay, thank you. Someone once told me that if I'm preaching and I do not call you to respond to what God has said, I have not preached. And I think it's absolutely right. That's why we do an invitation. Because I want you to know that this isn't just a word to read, but it's a word to live by. I believe so strongly that this is God's word 
that it ought to change how we live. I'm not so good at living that way all the time. Anybody with me on that? But again, we're learning. It's a work in progress. They read, the leaders gave the meaning. Maybe that's why it took so long. Maybe they had to stop every now and then because Ezra said something and the folks, the leaders, had to say, all right, now let's make sure you understand what this means. You ever come across a passage of Scripture and you read it and you think, wait a minute, did I just read that right? And you read it again and you think, does it really say that? And then as, as God's Spirit is enlightening you, as He's illuminating the text to you, as He's helping you understand it, you realize, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. That's sarcasm. <laughs> or, or that's the way that men see it, but that's not true. The book of Ecclesiastes is like that. You hear it, and he's going from one extreme to, to another. He talks in one case about how you should love life and enjoy all of the benefits of it. And then just the next verse later, he says, he says life is meaningless. And you're like, is this two people writing this book? Like, like how does this jive? And what you come to find out is that he is trying to figure it out too. They're reading. Something's not clear. Let's explain it. Someone has a question. Let me help you understand it. Let me make this clear so that everyone knows what it means. This wasn't a passive, easy listening section. Session. John Paul Jones reads the King James Version on audio CD. This was an intensive and a comprehensive Bible study. Revival might be hot when God is convicting of sin and bringing people to his kingdom, but that heat burns because the coal of the word of God is piled up high and constantly being shoveled into the broilers of our hearts. Sometimes we need help knowing what God has said and what to actually do with it. So those of us who know must help others get it too. And this is why I say it's not just for leaders. It's not just for Sunday school teachers and preachers. Some of you know firsthand. You've lived with God. You've read his word. He's opened your eyes to what this means. Share. Tell someone. Don't just sit on it. Give it out. Train someone else to know God like that too. Every one of us has something to contribute. Joe Northington used to say, uh, if you're still alive, God's still got work for you to do. Boy, is he right. So help someone know what you know. Pass it on. Back at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you learn and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Who was it that told him? Mama and grandmama. They trained him. They didn't need somebody with a seminary degree to come teach Timothy how to learn to love God and how to follow him. They did it themselves. You can do it too. God's revealed himself to you. Pass it on. One final response. We hear it. We honor it. We hearken to it. We help others understand it. Finally, we must heed it. If you don't do it, what good does it do? You can look through chapters 8 through 10 and see just how the people applied the word of God. They're saddened by their sin, so they grieve before God. In fact, that same day, they, the leaders had to tell them, no, 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 this is a holy day. Rejoice. Don't grieve over your sin. 
today. This is not a day for grieving. This is a day for celebrating the word of God being renewed. The next day, they come to find out, they come to another Bible study and they come to find out we've been missing feasts. So you know what they do? They do the feast. First time since Joshua, the son of Nun, led the Israelites into the promised land that they had celebrated that feast. And then after the feast is over, they came back together. This time not feasting, but fasting. Now it's time to be broken over your sins. Repenting. Reading the word for a few hours, repenting of their sin for a few more. The Levites offer a prayer in chapter 9. Most of chapter 9 is one single prayer. And you know what all of that prayer is? It's a recounting of the scriptures. This is what you've done. This is how good you've been to, to us. This is how you did so good for our fathers. And yet we continue to sin against you. And we continue to sin. And no matter how good you are, we are just terrible toward you. So God, we repent. And now we covenant with you to follow your word. After a list of all the people who, all the elders in the community who would sign that covenant, they actually physically signed a covenant. After listing all those folks, the people express their covenant by certain specific ways. Here's how we're going to follow your law. We're going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to marry foreign women like, you've, like you have instructed us not to. We are going to make sure that the sacrifices are being offered. We're not going to give up worshiping you the way that you've described. We're not going to neglect your house. We are going to follow your commandments. And all of this leads us to that simple truth that God's spirit blesses his people when they treat his word with reverence, when they hear it, when they honor it, when they hearken to it, when they help others understand it, when they heed it. Revival truly happens when we prioritize obedience to his word. Because when we do that, we're showing him that he really is in charge. Father, this morning we need revival. We don't need revival because things are not so good. We don't need revival just because, well, it's that time of year again. We don't need revival because... Because, God, we're pretty good, but we just need a little top off of your grace. Lord, we need revival because without you, we're destitute. Without you, we're sunk. So, Father, revive us. Restore to us the priority of your word. Help us to love your words because we love you. And help us to live out your words. Start it right here. Revive our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.